Chapter 6 of Homage to Catalonia, written by George Orwell. Chapter 6 Meanwhile, the daily more particularly nightly round, the common task. Sentry go, patrols, digging, mud, rain, shrieking winds, and occasional snow. It was not till well into April that the nights grew noticeably warmer. Up here on the plateau, the March days were mostly like an English march, with bright blue skies and nagging winds. The winter barley was a foot high. Crimson buds were forming on the cherry trees. The line here ran through deserted orchards and vegetable gardens. And if you searched the ditches, you could find violets and a kind of wild hyacinth, like a poor specimen of a bluebell. Immediately behind the line, there ran a wonderful green bubbling stream, my f the first transparent water I had seen since coming to the front. One day, I set my teeth and crawled into the river to have my first bath in six weeks. It was what you might call a brief bath, for the water was mainly snow water and not much above freezing point. Meanwhile, nothing happened. Nothing ever happened. The English had got into the habit of saying that this wasn't a war, it was a bloody pantomime. We were hardly under direct fire from the fascists. The only danger was from stray bullets, which, as the lines curved forward on either side, came from several directions. All the casualties at this time were from strays. Arthur Clinton got a mysterious bullet that smashed his left shoulder and disabled his arm. Permanently, I'm afraid. There was a little shell fire, but it was extraordinarily ineffectual. The scream and crash of the shells was actually looked upon as a mild diversion. The fascists never dropped their shells on our parapet. A few hundred yards behind us, there was a country house called La Grania, with big farm buildings, which was used as a store, headquarters, and cookhouse for this sector of the line. It was this that the fascist gunners were trying for, but they were five or six kilometers away, and they never aimed well enough to do more than smash the windows or chip the walls. You were only in danger if you happened to be coming up the road when the firing started and the sh shells plunged into the sides, into the fields on either side of you. One learned almost immediately the mysterious art of knowing by the sound of a shell how close it will fall. The shells the fascists were filing, firing at this period were wretchedly bad. Although they were, they were 150 millimeter, they only made a crater about six feet wide by four deep, and at least one in four failed to explode. There were the usual romantic tales of sabotage in the fascist factories and unexploded shells in which, instead of the charge, there was found a scrap of paper saying, Red Front, but I never saw one. The truth was that the shells were hopelessly old. Fascist guns were of the same make and caliber as our own. And the unexploded shells <clears throat> were often reconditioned and fired back. There was said to be one old shell with a nickname of, on it, of its own, which traveled daily to and fro, never exploding. At night, small patrols used to be sent into no man's land to lie in ditches near the fascist lines and listened for sounds, bugle calls, motor horns, and so forth, that indicated activity in Huesca. There was a constant come and go of fascist troops, and the numbers could be checked to some extent from listeners' reports. We always had special orders to report the ringing of church bells. 
it seemed the fascists always heard mass before going into action. In among the fields and orchards there were deserted mud-walled huts, which it was safe to explore with a lighted match when you had plugged up the windows. Sometimes you came on valuable pieces of loot, such as a hatchet or a fascist water bottle, better than ours and greatly sought after. You could explore in the daytime as well, but mostly it had to be done crawling on all fours. It was queer to cramp about in these empty, fertile fields where everything had been rested just at the harvest moment. Last year's crops had never been touched. The unpruned vines were sneaking across the ground. The cobs on the standing maize had gone as hard as stone. The mangles and sugar beets were hypertrophied into huge woody lumps. How the peasants must have cursed both armies. Sometimes parties of men went spud-gathering in no man's land. About a mile to the right of us, where the lines were closer together, there was a patch of potatoes that was frequented by, both by the fascists and ourselves. We went there in the daytime, they only at night, as it was commanded by our machine guns. One night, to our annoyance, they turned out en masse and cleared up the whole patch. We discovered another patch further on, where there was practically no cover and you had to lift the potatoes lying on your belly, a fatiguing job. If their machine gunners spotted you, you had to flatten yourself like out like a rat when it squirms under a door, with the bullets cutting on the cl clods a few yards behind you. It seemed worth it at the time. Potatoes were getting very scarce. If you had... If you got a sack full, you could take them down to the cookhouse and swap them for a water bottle full of coffee. And still nothing happened. Nothing ever looked like happening. When are we going to attack? Why don't we attack? were the questions you heard night and day from Spaniard and Englishmen alike. When you think what fighting means, it is queer that soldiers want to fight, and yet undoubtedly they do. In stationary warfare, there are three things that all soldiers long for. A battle, more cigarettes, and a week's leave. We were somewhat better armed now than before. Each man had a hundred and fifty rounds of ammunition now instead of fifty, and by degrees we were being issued with bayonets, steel helmets, and a few bombs. There were constant rumors of forthcoming type of battles, which I have since thought were deliberately circulated to keep up the spirit of the troops. It did not need much military knowledge to see that there would be no major attack on this side of Huesca, at any rate for the time being. The strategic point was the road to Jaca, over on the other side. Later, when the anarchists made their attacks on the Jaca road, our job was to make holding attacks and force the fascists to divert, divert troops from the other side. During all of this time, about six weeks, there was only one action on our part of the front. This was when our shock troopers attacked the Manicomio, a disguised lunatic asylum which the fascists had converted into a fortress. There were several hundred refugee Germans serving with the POUM. They were organized in a special battalion called the Bataillon de Cheque. And from a military point of view, they were on quite a different level from the rest of the militia. Indeed, they indeed, were more like soldiers than anyone I saw in Spain, except the assault guards and some of the international column. The attack was mucked up as usual. How many operations in this war on the government side were not mucked up, I wonder? The shock troops sent, took the manicomio 
by storm, but the troops of I forget which militia, who were to support them by seizing the neighboring hill that commanded the manicomio, were badly let down. The captain who led them was one of those regular army officers of doubtful loyalty whom the government persisted in employing. Either from fright or treachery, he warned the fascists by flinging a bomb when they were two hundred yards away. I am glad to say his men shot him dead on the spot. But the surprise attack was no surprise, and the militiamen were mown down by heavy fire and driven off the hill, and at nightfall the shock troops had to abandon the manicomio. Through the night, the ambulances filed down the abominable road to Sietamo, killing the badly wounded with their joltings. All of us were lousy by this time, though still cold, it was warm enough for that. I have had a big experience of body vermin of various kinds, and for sheer beastliness, the new louse beats everything I have encountered. Other insects, mosquitoes for instance, make you suffer more, but at least they aren't resonant vermin. The human louse somehow resembles a tiny lobster, and he lives chiefly in your trousers. Short of, short of burning all of your clothes, there's no known way of getting rid of him. Down the seams of your trousers, he lays his glittering white eggs like tiny grains of rice, which hatch out and breed families of their own at horrible speed. I think the pacifists might find it helpful to illustrate their pamphlets with enlarged photographs of lice. Glory of war, indeed. In war, all soldiers were lousy, at least when it was, at least when it is warm enough, or lousy. The men who fought at Verdun, at Waterloo, at Flodden, at Senlac, at Thermoplaye, every one of them had lice crawling over his testicles. We kept the brutes down to some extent by burning out the eggs and by bathing as often as we could face it. Nothing short of lice could have driven me into that ice-cold river. Everything was running short. Boots, clothes, tobacco, soap, candles, matches, olive oil. Our uniforms were dropping to pieces, and many of the men had no boots, only rope-soled sandals. You came on piles of worn-out boots everywhere. Once we kept a dugout fire burning for two days, mainly with boots, which are not bad fuel. By this time, my wife was in Barcelona and used to send me tea, chocolate, and even cigars when such things were po procurable. But even in Barcelona, everything was running short, especially tobacco. The tea was a godsend, though we had no milk and seldom any sugar. Parcels were constantly being sent from England to men in the contingent, but they never arrived. Food, clothes, cigarettes, everything was either refused by the post office or seized in France. Curiously enough, the only firm that succeeded in sending packets of tea, even on one memorable occasion a tin of biscuits to my wife, was the Army and Navy stores. Poor old Army and Navy. They did their duty nobly, but perhaps they might have felt happier if the stuff had been going to Franco's side of the barricade. The shortage of tobacco was the worst of all. Uh, at the beginning, we had been issued with a packet of cigarettes a day, then it got down to eight cigarettes a day, then to five. Finally, there were ten deadly days when there was no issue of tobacco at all. For the first time in Spain, I saw something that you see every day in London. People picking up fag ends.
Towards the end of March, I got a poisoned hand that had to be lanced and put in a sling. I had to go into a hospital, but it was not worth sending me to Siatamo for such a petty injury, so I stayed in the so-called hospital at Monflorite, which was merely a casualty clearing station. I was there ten days, part of the time in bed. The Proctisantes hospital assistants stole practically every valuable object I possessed, including my camera and all my photographs. At the front, everyone stole. It was the inevitable effect of shortage, but the hospital people were always the worst. Later, in the, co in the hospital at Barcelona, an American who had come to join the international column on a ship that was torpedoed by an Italian submarine told me how he was carried ashore, wounded, and how, even as they lifted him into the ambulance, the stretcher-bearers pinched his rest watch. While my arm was in the sling, I spent several blissful days wandering about the countryside. Monflorite was the usual huddle of mud and stone houses with narrow, torturous alleys that had been churned by lorries till they looked like the craters of the moon. The church had been badly knocked about, but was used as a military store. In the whole neighborhood, there were only two farmhouses of any size, Torre Lorenzo and Torre Fabian, and only two really large buildings, obviously the houses of the landowners who had once lorded it over the countryside. You could see their wealth reflected in the miserable huts of the peasants. Just behind the river, close to the front line, there was an enormous flour mill with the country house attached to it. It seemed shameful to see the huge costly machine rusting useless and the wooden flower shoots torn down for firewood. Later on, to get firewood for the troops farther back, parties of men were sent in lorries to wreck the place systematically. They used to smash the floorboards of a room by bursting a hand grenade in it. La Granja, our store and cookhouse had possibly at one time been a convent. It had huge courtyards and outhouses, covering an acre or more, with stabling for thirty or forty horses. The country houses in that part of Spain are of no interest architecturally, but their farm buildings of lime-washed stone with round arches and magnificent roof beams are noble places built on a plan that has probably not altered for centuries. Sometimes it gave you a sneaking sympathy with the fascist ex-owners to see the way the militia treated the buildings they had seized. In La Granja, every room that was not in use had been turned into a latrine, a frightful, sham a frightful sh shambles of smashed furniture and excrement. The little church that adjoined it, its walls per perforated by shell holes, had its floor inches dug deep in dung. In the great courtyard where the cooks ladled out the rations, the litter of rusty tins, mud, mule dung, and decaying food was revolting. It gave point to the old army song. There are rats, rats, rats as big as cats, in the quartermaster's store. The ones at La Granja itself really were as big as cats, or nearly. Great bloated brutes that waddled over the beds of muck too impudent even to run away unless you shot at them. Spring was really here at last. The blue in the sky was softer. The air grew suddenly balming. The frogs were mating noisily in the ditches. Round the drinking pool that served for a village mules for the village mules I found exquisite green frogs the size of a penny, 
so brilliant that the young grass looked dulled beside them. Peasant lads went out with buckets hunting for snails, which they roasted alive on sheets of tin. As soon as the weather improved, the peasants had turned out for the spring plowing. It is typical of the utter vagueness in which the Spanish agrarian revolution is wrapped that I cannot even discover for certain whether the land here was collectivized or whether the peasants had simply divided it up among themselves. I fancy that in theory it was collectivized, this being POUM, an anarchist territory. At any rate, the landowners were gone, and the fields were being cultivated, and people seemed satisfied. The friendliness of the peasants towards ourselves never ceased to astonish me. To some of the older ones, the war must have seemed meaningless. Visibly, it produced a shortage of everything, and a dismal, dull life for everybody, and at the best of times, peasants hate having troops quartered among them. Yet they were invariably friendly, I suppose reflecting that however intolerable, however intolerable we might be in other ways, we did stand between them and their one-time landlords. Civil war is a queer thing. Huesca was not five miles away. It was these people's market town. All of them had relatives there. Every week of their lives they had gone there to sell their poultry and vegetables. And now, for eight months, an impenetrable barrier of barbed wire and machine guns had lain between. Occasionally it slipped their memory. Once I was talking to an old woman who was carrying one of those tiny iron lamps in which the Spaniards bum olive oil. Where can I buy a lamp like that? I said. In Huesca, she said without thinking, and then we both laughed. The village girls were splendid, vivid creatures with coal-black hair, a swinging walk, and a straightforward man-to-man -man demeanor, which was probably a byproduct of the revolution. Men in ragged blue shirts and black corduroy breeches with broad-rimmed straw hats were plowing the fields behind teams of mules and with rhythmically flopping ears. Their plows were wretched things, only stirring the soil, not cutting anything we should regard as a furrow. All the agricultural implements were pitifully antiquated, everything being governed by the expensiveness of metal. A broken plowshare, for instance, was patched and then patched again, till sometimes it was mainly patches. Rakes and pitchforks were made of wood. Spades, among a people who seldom possessed boots, were unknown. They did their digging with a clumsy hoe like those used in India. It was a kind of harrow that took one straight back to the later Stone Age. It was made of boards joined together to about the size of a kitchen table. In the boards, hundreds of holes were mort mortised, and into each hole was jammed a piece of flint, which had been chipped into shape exactly as men used to chip them 10,000 years ago. I remember my, my derelict hut in no man's land. I had to puzzle over it for a long time, while bef a long t while before grasping that it was a hero. It made me sick to think of the work that must go into making of such a thing, and the poverty that was obliged to use flint in place of steel. I felt more kindly towards industrialism ever since, but in the village there were two up-to-date farm tractors, no doubt seized from some big landowner's estate. Once or twice I wandered out to the little walled graveyard that stood a mile or so from the village. The dead from the front were normally sent to see a tamo, 
These were the village dead. It was queerly different from an English graveyard. No reverence for the dead here. Everything overgrown with bushes and coarse grass. Human bones littered everywhere. But the really surprising thing was the almost complete lack of religious inscriptions on the gravestones, though they all dated from before the revolution. Only once, I think, I saw the, quote, pray for the soul of so-and-so, which is usual on Catholic graves. Most of the inscriptions were purely secular, with ludicrous poems about the virtues of the deceased. On perhaps one grave in four or five, there was a small cross or a perfunctory reference to heaven. This had usually been chipped off by some industrious atheist with a chisel. It struck me that the people in this part of Spain must be genuinely without religious feeling. Relig religious feeling, I mean, in the orthodox sense. It is curious that all the time I was in Spain, I never once saw a person cross himself. Yet you would think such a movement would become instinctive, revolution or no revolution. Obviously, the Spanish church will come back, as the saying goes, night and the Jesuits will return. But there is no doubt that at the outbreak of the revolution, it collapsed and was smashed up to an extent that would be unthinkable, even for the moribund sea of E in like circumstances. To the Spanish people, at any rate, in Catalonia and Aragon, the church was a racket, pure and simple, and possibly Christian belief was replaced to some extent by anarchism, whose influence is widely spread and which undoubtedly has a religious tinge. It was the day I came back from hospital that we advanced the line to what was really its proper position about a thousand yards forward, along the little stream that lay a couple of hundred yards in front of the fascist line. This operation ought to have been carried out months earlier. The point of doing it now was that the anarchists were attacking on the Jaca road, and to advance on this side made them divert troops to face us. We were sixty or seventy hours without sleep, and my memories go down into a sort of blue, or rather a series of pictures. Listening duty, in no man's land, a hundred yards from the Casa Francesca, a fortified farmhouse which was part of the fascist line. Seven years lying in a horrible marsh, in re-smelling water, into which one's body subsided gradually deeper and deeper. The reedy smell, the numbing cold, the stars immovable in a black sky, the harsh croaking of the frogs. Though this was April, it was the coldest night that I remember in Spain. Only a hundred yards behind us, the working parties were hard at it, but there was only silence except for the chorus of the frogs. Just once during the night, I heard a sound, the familiar sound of a sandbag being flattened to the spade. It is queer how, just now and again, Spaniards can carry out a brilliant feat of organization. The whole move was beautifully planned. In seven hours, 600 men constructed 1,200 meters of trench and parapet at distances of from 150 to 300 yards from the fascist line, and all so silently that the fascists heard nothing, and during the night there was only one casualty. There were more next day, of course. Every man had his job assigned to him, even to the cookhouse orderlies who suddenly arrived when the work was done with buckets of wine laced with brandy. And then the dawn coming up, and the fascists suddenly discovering that we were there. 
The square white block of the Casa Francesca, though it was 200 yards away, seemed to tower over us, and the machine guns in its sandbagged upper windows seemed to be pointing straight down from the, the trench, into the trench. We all stood gaping at it, wondering why the fascists didn't see us. Then a vicious swirl of bullets, and everyone had flung himself on his knees and was frantically digging, deepening the trench and scooping out small shelters in the side. My arm was still in bandages. I could not dig, and I spent most of that day reading a detective story, The Missing Money Lender, its name was. I don't remember the plot of it, but I remember very clearly the feeling of sitting there reading it, the dampish clay of the trench bottom underneath me. The constant shifting of my legs out of the way as men hurried, stop, stopping down the trench. The crack, crack, crack of bullets a foot or two overhead. Thomas Parker got a bullet through the top of his thigh, which, as he said, was nearer to being a DSO than he cared about. Casualties were happening all along the line, but nothing to what there would have been if they had caught us on the move during the night. A deserter told us afterwards that five fascist sentries were shot for negligence. Even now, they could have massacred us if they had had the initiative to bring up a few mortars. It was an awkward job getting the wounded down the narrow, crowded trench. I saw one poor devil, his breeches dark with blood, flung out of his stretcher and gasping, gasping in agony. One had to carry wounded men a long distance, a mile or more, for even when a road existed, the ambulances never came very near the front line. If they came too near, the fascists had a habit of shelling them, justifiably, for in the modern war, no one scruples to use an ambulance for carrying ammunition. And then, next night, waiting at Torre Fabian for an attack that was called off at the last moment by wireless, in the barn where we waited, the floor was a thin layer of shaft over deep beds of bones, human bones, and cows mixed, mixed up, and the place was alive with rats. The filthy brutes came swarming out of the ground on every side. If there is one thing I hate more than another, it is a rat running over me in the darkness. However, I had the satisfaction of catching one of them, a good punch that sent him flying. And then waiting fifty or sixty yards from the fascist parapet for the order to attack, a long line of men crouching in an irrigation ditch with their bayonets peeping over the edge and the whiteness of their eyes shining through the darkness. Cop and Benjamin squatting behind us with a man who had a wireless receiving box strapped to his shoulders. On the western horizon, rosy gun flashes followed at intervals of several seconds by enormous explosions. And then a pit, pit, pit noise from the wireless and the whispered order that we were to get out of it while the going was good. We did so, but not quickly enough. Twelve wretched children of the JCI, the Youth League of the POUM, corresponding to the JSU of the PSUC, who had been posted only about forty yards from the fascist parapet, were caught by the dawn and unable to escape. All day they had to lie there with only tufts of grass for cover, the fascists shooting at them every time they moved. By nightfall, seven were dead, then the other five managed to creep away in the darkness. And then, for many mornings to follow, the sound of the anarchist attacks on the other side of Huesca. Always the same sound. Suddenly, at some time in the small hours, the opening crash of several score bombs bursting simultaneously. Even from miles away, a diabolical, rending crash 
and then the unbroken roar of massed rifles and machine guns, a heavy rolling sound curiously similar to the roll of drums. By degrees, the firing would spread all around the lines that encircled Huesca, and we would stumble out into the trench to le lean sleepily against the parapet, while a ragged, meaningless fire swept overhead. In the daytime, the guns thundered fitfully. Torre Fabian, now our cookhouse, was shelled and partially destroyed. It is curious that when you are watching artillery fire from a safe distance, you always want the gunner to hit its mark, even though the mark contains your dinner and some of your comrades. The fascists were shooting well that morning. Perhaps there were German gunners on the job. They bracketed neatly on Fort Torre Fabian. One shell beyond it, one shell short of it. Then whiz, boom, burst, rafters leaping upwards in a sheet of light skimming down the air like a nicked playing card. The next shell took off the corner, a corner of a building, as neatly as a giant might do it with a knife. But the cooks produced dinner on time, a memorable feast. As the days went on, the unseen but audible guns began each to assume a distinct personality. There were the two batteries of Russian 75mm guns which fired from close in our rear, and which somehow evoked in my mind the picture of a fat man hitting a golf ball. These were the first Russian guns I had seen, or heard, rather. They had a low trajectory and a very high velocity, so that you heard the cartridge explosion, the whiz, and the shell burst almost simultaneously. Behind Montfleury were two very heavy guns, which fired a few times a day, with a deep, muffled roar that was like the bang of distant, chained-up monsters. Up at Mount Aragon, the medieval fortress which the government troops had stormed last year, the first time in its history, it was said, and which guarded one of the approaches to Huesca, there was a heavy gun which must have dated well back into the 19th century. Its great shells whistled over so slowly that you could feel certain you could run beside them and keep along on a bicycle and whistling. The trench mortars, small though they were, made the most evil sound of all. Their shells are really a kind of winged torpedo, shaped like the darts thrown in public houses, and about the size of a quart bottle. They go off with a devilish metallic crash, as of some monstrous globe of brittle steel being shattered on an anvil. Sometimes our aeroplanes flew over and let loose the aerial torpedoes, whose tremendous echoing roar makes the earth tremble, even at two miles' distance. The shell bursts from the fascist anti-aircraft guns dotted the sky like cloudlets in a bad, bad watercolor, but I never saw them get within a thousand yards of, the, of an aeroplane. When an aeroplane swoops down and uses this machine gun, the sound from below is like the fluttering of wings. On our right of the line, much not much was happening. Two hundred yards to the right of us, where the fascists were on higher ground, their snipers picked off a few of our comrades. Two hundred yards to the left, at the bridge over the stream, a sort of duel was going on between the fascist mortars and the men who were building a concrete barricade across the bridge. The evil little shells whizzed over, zwing, crash, zwing, crash, making a doubly diabolical noise when they landed on the asphalt road. A hundred yards away, you could stand in perfect safety and watch the columns of earth and black smoke leaping into the air like magic trees. 
The poor devils around the bridge spent much of the daytime cowering in the little manholes they had scooped inside of the trench. But there were less casualties than might have been expected, and the barricade rose steadily. A wall of concrete two feet thick with embrasures for two machine guns and a small field gun. The concrete was being reinforced with old bedsteads, which apparently was the only iron that could be found for the purpose. End of chapter 6 of George Orwell's Homage to Catalonia Brought to you by The Another World is Possible podcast HTTP colon slash slash another world is possible dot soup dot io